Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. As a journalist, one of the best things about my job is being allowed into the far-flung and most fascinating corners of our industry to find out how things work. Protection and Indemnity, P&I, is exactly one of those places. And it would be easy to ignore were it not the source of so many of the biggest insurance stories of the past decade. For example, a mega-claim like the Costa Concordia was a P&I event that captured the attention of the whole world over many months. But most of us know almost nothing about this ultra-specialist part of the insurance world and the 13 global marine liability mutuals that inhabit it. In fact, we're actually more ignorant because of most of what we think we know about P&I is probably wrong. So that's why I decided to record this episode with Dorothea Iyanu, who is the Chief Commercial Officer of the American Club. If you don't know Dorothea, she's extremely well regarded and a strong character, and I had a great time talking with her. As well as misbusting much of what the non-marine world thinks it knows about PNI, we discuss the ongoing impact of COVID-19 and other major trends affecting the marine sector and the wider insurance world. As we were both in lockdown, we spoke on a web call between London and Athens, and so occasionally we get the inevitable bit of interference on the line. But I'm pretty happy with the end result. So enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Dorothea, what are the specific challenges that P&I clubs are facing with the COVID-19 crisis? The challenges that we're facing are, I would, I would say, the same types of challenges that we have faced in the past related to um, uh, infectious diseases and outbreaks on ships. Obviously, this is probably the, the, the largest, at least in my experience, in my history, in my career. Um, the basic things that we have to deal with, obviously, are outbreaks on the ship and how we manage that. Um, because then we have um, not just the normal usual illness that has one person getting sick and a regular repatriation, but because now the level of a pandemic, that means that you're not only having to deal with managing multiple cases on a ship, but you also have to deal with now um, restrictions within ports, restrictions for travel, um, inability sometimes to even disembark, unfortunately, crew members that have passed uh, because of fears in ports. We had a case like that and it took us quite some time. Um, and in fact, in the end, we the authorities did not allow the body to be repatriated and um, it had to be done in a, a foreign country. So in, in terms of the, um, the management of the body. So these are, these are really sad things that we're dealing with. I've never had to deal with things like that. Um, I think, uh, a larger challenge also is related to the fact that, you know, some clubs may be um, over uh, exposed because they may have a larger sector, let's say, of cruise ships um, within their membership. So that complicates what, things. Is that because cruise ships have got such, such large crews? 
They have such large crews and there are, so it's a, com so it's a combination, right? You have the large uh, level of crews, but you also have passenger liability then implicated. So it's not as simple as let's say a tanker or a bulker where you're just dealing you know, average size of crews of 25 people, let's say on a ship, um, depending on the, on the size. Okay. But you're dealing sometimes with thousands. Um, and then, uh, that then leads into other aspects of management of this crisis. And that is some cruise line operators are making commercial decisions not to proceed with cruises. And that though, though not directly impacting on P&I cover because it's a commercial decision. The P&I clubs, because we're owners mutuals, we are there to help in every single situation. So we're doing our best through our network of correspondence to assist them in managing these things. And sometimes that includes cutting short cruises and, you know, helping and facilitating repatriation of passengers and, and crew. Given that you've had this long-standing relationship between the shipping industry and communicable diseases and quarantine, I suppose it's been as long as ships have been sailing, you know, yeah. since, since sort of the commerce of the 15th century, 16th century, that there's always been this problem of, uh, of, yeah. uh, of, you know, going to foreign climes and picking up uh, diseases and then potentially spreading them around the world and being, and yeah. being quarantined. Do you think the P&I industry is actually better prepared than most of us for this kind of challenge? Well, I think from definitely from an insurance perspective, yes, I think that we are. I mean, if you look on most clubs' websites, if you look at our website, there's a whole section that's dedicated to infectious diseases. So, um, you know, we've had to deal with malaria. We had to deal with Ebola in 2014. Um, a lot of the same issues that uh, we had to deal with in 2014, we're dealing with now. Um, so a lot of the information that we're circulating comes out of already existing research that we've done and already existing experience that that we've had. So yes, we've had to deal with this, with this type of liability or this type of crisis. But like I said, I think it's a matter of scale. I can't remember in my years to have something like this, of this scale. I can't remember having an infectious disease crisis, which impacted on restrictions of travel on a global level. I think that's the difference now. But I do, I do believe, yes, that we were in a, an advantageous position to be ready to deal with, with it. So, uh, you, so your principal problem is things like repatriation that you simply can't do at the moment because there are no, yes. because if there are no flights. Yes, because there's no flights and also because uh, authorities uh, um, within the ports are not allowing disembarkation in, in many cases. And, that, and, and also, I ha we have a case of a, of a cruise ship that has decided, to, you know, is going to be laid up. They've decided not to do the season, but they had started to prepare. So they had 52 crew on board and the authorities will not allow them to disembark. And there's complications related to actually getting flights. But I think in the end of the day, you probably can manage to find flights, even if it's in a roundabout way. The biggest problem is that the authorities, number one, they're imposing quarantines sometimes on crews, and then they're simply not allowing them to disembark. So that's, that's also a challenge. Yeah. So generally, you've got um, ships that are just anchored just offshore, uh, that then yeah. you need to be sort of sending supplies out to them and medical yeah. supplies and, and food. Yeah. 
and then you're, yeah. you're kind of helping to cover those increased costs of, uh, of well of no there. well see this is the thing this is the this the, the cover issue is a is a different matter so no matter what whether something's covered or not covered the pni clubs are there to help and facilitate and provide um assistance through their network of correspondence but unless there's an actual outbreak on a ship the cover cover is not triggered based on the express rules right because we are always restricted within the rules so the good thing though is that the all pni clubs within their rules have a catch-all called the omnibus clause so in the end of the day every single member is free to bring an omnibus claim to their board of directors um, if they believe that it's warranted for cover and they will be the decision will be made by their own peers but Matt, from a management perspective, the rules do not give us discretion to extend cover actual reimbursement for costs unless there has been an outbreak on the ship. And in terms of, um, you know, are there that many outbreaks on ships other than the cruise uh, liners that we've seen that have been in major headlines? We have not seen one in our membership so far, but, you know, we are a smaller club. <laughs> Well, I don't great. know. About well, thanks, Dorothea. Yeah. And also, actually, there's the other question. Any other questions? And how how's the American Club dealing with this itself operationally? Um, you're in Athens, and you wouldn't normally be in Athens, no. uh, I imagine. Um, but I, I mean, you you travel to you, you obviously have a big office in Athens, but uh, you're out of position. So, I mean, how's the how's the club itself operating? So, I I mean, I have found this such a an interesting experience, actually. We have gone totally virtual, totally digital, totally online. We've implemented um, a management approach through cross-functional, cross-departmental, cross-office meetings, which are set scheduled every single week. I, right now, uh, oversee business continuity operations from Greece for Asia, Europe, and the UK. And then I act as a conduit for the New York office. And we actually, I think, get things done a little bit faster, if you ask me. Because one of the unique things about this whole crisis and everybody being home is that every single decision maker is immediately and easily accessible. So, whereas sometimes, whereas we were always we were always efficient and things, you know, we already had a system in place to to, to manage how we operate. Usually, decisions might take two or three days, let's say, because different people might be traveling. Like you said, I mean, I'm based in New York right now, but I travel to all of our offices, and I also travel for business development uh, and for various purposes for the club. So. At any given time, one of us could have been on a plane and things would have to be delayed. Well, now nobody's ever on a plane. <laughs> We're all in our homes. <laughs> and basically, if there's an issue in Asia in the morning, it's resolved by midnight that same day in, <laughs> in my time anyway, in Greece. Yeah. So you know where everyone is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is an advantage. Um, and I think it's going to probably shift a lot of the, shift a little bit the way that we all do business. I mean, uh, I wor actually work more than I've ever worked before <laughs> because I connect all of the time zones within which we work. So I found it a, a, a remarkable experience. I've, been, I've embraced it. All of us have embraced it. Um, one of the, the other things that we took the opportunity to do was there were some little elements of what we were doing from operations, which were still partly paper-based. Well, we were all forced to abandon that everybody every single person had to embrace you know electronic version of everything that we do and even some processes that were 
maybe the timeline was a little bit longer to go digital or go on some of our platforms. We just went with it and we're now fully virtual. Well, great. Thanks, Dorothy. I think that's really good to, to, to have kind of addressed that issue straight away because it'd be crazy to do a podcast right now and not talk about that issue. Yes. Because <laughs> um, actually, and I should now level with the listeners, because actually I, I wanted to do this originally as a kind of primer and a myth buster about P&I because those that don't work in P&I I think we'll find it almost a closed off uh, part of the world. And it's a part of the world of the insurance world that I've always found fascinating as a journalist, because it's just, it's just particularly interesting. Also, I have a particular affinity with, with, the, with the sea and the sort of marine industry myself anyway, personally. So I'd love to do just a quick run through with you for the benefit of our, you know, our non-PNI, non-marine listeners, what PNI is all about. And why don't we start with a kind of, how do you explain when, you, when you're talking to an insurance person who's not a PNI person, how do you explain it to them usually you know when when you know it's sort of simply when you're talking in a bar or something okay right because i'm always talking about this in a bar right <laughs> well if you as if you were no, as if you were just a joke yeah so i actually like to talk about it in simple terms you know when when i started in the industry i had no clue about uh pni when i started in uh, in in shipping um back in the late 90s so i find it very interesting, fascinating. I think it's a world within a world. And the way I explain it basically is if you're used to looking at insurance in a classic, let's say commercial structure platform, the way that P&I works, at least for the mutual side of it, which is what we are, they are, let's talk about the structure first. So they are non-for-profit mutual insurance associations. What does that mean? That means that they're not stock companies, number one. Okay. It means that they have what we call members because it's a club and it's the money or the premium that's paid in is what is used to manage and pay for the liabilities. Now, obviously this has been going on for since the early, since the 1800s, I think the oldest club is about 165 years old. So we've managed to build up, you know, the, the capital required to manage it like this. The, the breadth of, and the scope of the cover is, is very large. So we cover things that start from a regular crew illness, like we talked about earlier, and it can go to, it goes to oil pollution, to casualties, to groundings, to rec removable, rec, rec removal, collisions, things like that. But what's really unique about, I think, the P&I cover on two levels is that if the, if, the, if the mutual has a bad year, which means that the premiums that they collected were not enough to cover the claims, theoretically, and within its structure, they are, the, the mutual itself is entitled to ask for additional what's called calls from the membership to meet that deficit. And also on the, on the other side of that, if there is more money in the end of the year than the claims that were incurred, there's two ways that that can be approached. A decision can be made by the board to put that money, keep it in the club to increase the surplus, keep it healthy, or it can also issue a dividend um, to its members. So this is the unique aspect, which means that theoretically, and not just theoretically, in a, in a realistic form, the mutual P&I clubs cannot go insolvent. And that is a concept, actually, that we find very hard sometimes to explain to regulators, even hard to explain to, like you said, non-P&I people. Really, it's a, it's a self-regulating mechanism that will always keep it afloat. 
will always ensure that it's healthy. And the other unique thing about the mutuals is that because it's owned by its own members, it's run by its members. So the rules were created to be able to adapt and evolve to meet the needs that the ship owners themselves feel should be met. And the rules are structured like that. They evolve with the times. And we've seen that time and time again, as liability, as, as, as world regimes and conventions increase, P&I cover has increased and has met it. When the world had a crisis with crews that were being abandoned, the P&I world met it. And that's because it's run by its ship owners. So the mutuals have a board of directors, they have committees that are elected by the membership. It's usually made up by, the, by members themselves, by representatives of the ship-owning companies. Um, they usually include also some independent members because we do need to have a, a balanced structure and avoid conflict. And then the day-to-day -day operations are handled by professional managers like us, like Ship Owners Claims Bureau for the American Club. And these managers have usually have experts, not usually, they always have experts in the field relating to marine liability. So you will find every single type of specialty employed by a manager, or sometimes some of the clubs actually directly employ. So these are the unique features of, of uh, the P&I world. I hope that I did that uh, did well, well enough for the non P and I people. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, no, well, some, yeah, something I've it's always um, uh, I've always wondered about is uh, you know your uh, liability insurers ultimately, but w why don't you do hull? Well, I mean, I know so you do, I think when you just, do hull, you do it on a, on on what you call a fixed premium basis, yes. as in more conventional insurance. You know, where you, you pay your premium and, yeah. you, and you don't get any refunds if you don't have any claims. Yeah. Well, I think, um, well, there, there, there's probably lots of reasons for that for different companies. Um, uh, let's start from the historical perspective. P&I clubs began simply because these types of liabilities could no longer be insured by your standard commercial underwriters that were doing the haul. They, they just refused. They just didn't want to do it. They didn't want to have that type of liability. So the P&I clubs were born out of that gap in right, insurance. Okay. Yes. Okay. And then beyond that, a lot of us, our licensing is restricted to liabilities and doesn't include Hull. And a lot like for the American Club, a lot of the benefits that we have within our regulatory domicile in New York is based on keeping that structure. So we would have to go back and undo a lot of that in order to do Hull. So the best way or the most effective way that the clubs have found is to do it separately. Also, don't forget the mutuals like us, the 13 clubs that are a member of the international group, the, the, I, the international group agreement is based on P&I. It's not just marine cover. So that is also one of the reasons why we stick to it. You've just introduced the international group. Yeah. Now, that's a group of the 13 main uh, P&I yes. clubs around the world. Yeah. Explain what that is and, and why that's so important. Yes. Yeah, so the international group is comprised of 13 P&I clubs. Between all of us, and the American Club is a member, between all of us, um, we provide cover for about 90% of the world's ocean going tonnage. And while each club individually manages itself, within the group, there is an agreement that all claims above 10 million are reinsured through a pooling agreement and a very large uh, reinsurance excess of loss structure, probably the largest, I think, in the world. 
So no matter what level of liability um, arises within any of the clubs, it can be met because of this very deep reinsurance structure. But it does more than that. So, I mean, its number one purpose is the claims pooling and reinsurance. But the group also does a lot more than that. So the group actually acts also as a forum for sharing information. So there are, I forgot, I forget now how many subcommittees they are, but all of the clubs send, represent, send representatives to act on their behalf within these subcommittees. And it, all the subcommittees deal with all the specialized areas of P&I. And we share information from our memberships and that helps us actually help the ship owner better. But not only, it actually provides a service, I think also, within the greater industry. There's been a huge motivation lately to also share more and more information and produce more data that can help the industry. And that's definitely a drive right now within the IG. Beyond that also, don't forget, the IG can also act as a voice for the ship owning industry, um, whether that is with um, other NGOs or within the regulatory forum or just within the industry. So it, it is really a very, I would say, remarkable organization and is a real resource to the industry. And I think, in my opinion, probably contributes to sustainability because it actually facilitates world trade. So what this group does is it provides a ticket to trade. When somebody has a certificate of entry from any one of the 13 clubs, which are a member of the IG, they can go into any port they like because it is evidence of real financial security. And the other thing, I actually want to go back to something. Talking about uh, explaining P&I to a non-P&I person, and this goes all the way up the chain into the IG. It's not, just a f it's not just a platform or a structure which pays claims. What the P&I clubs do is they are there from day one. They are with the ship owner managing that claim from from the very first notice to the very end. And it's not just a resource of expertise. So it's not just that the ship owner calls up a master mariner that works for the club or calls up a lawyer that works for the club and gets advice. No, we are actively involved. So we are the ones that are managing. We are the ones that are working in coordination with the member and giving the instructions. We are the ones that are using our vast experience to apply it to, to new types of claims, to apply it to a situation where a particular right. member may be hasn't had that type of experience. So you're so much more embedded than, than an insurance yes, company would be. So exactly. it's almost like that. What once they're in the club, they, they just use your facilities as if they yeah. were their own. You, you're like you're their in-house team, right? Yeah. Yes, an extension. Yes, exactly. That's it. Great. Okay, let's do a quick run through of some of these just like quick fire stuff on on P and I yeah. myth myth busting. Is it true that P and I clubs don't compete with each other on price? Is that? No, it's not true. That's not true. <laughs> It's not true. So it's one of those things that you, you hear around, you know, yes. you hear around. So that's not true. It's not true. And I would mention also that the IG went through a very um, intense review by the EU as well in order to ensure that, that it complies kind of competition. with competition. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The whole um, scrutiny was related to competition. So there are rules that we abide by because in order to be able to pool our claims, we have to have some structure to that and we have to have some rules. And don't forget that P&I has a long tail. So you can have uh, something that happens in one year and the actual liability might not happen, might not, 
might not be incurred for a number of years later, depending on statute of limitations for that claim. It could be anywhere from three to six years. So there has to be a mechanism in place which accommodates that. So basically what happens is this. If, one, if, a, if, a, if a ship owner wants to move a ship from one club to the other, there are restrictions in terms of the pricing for the first year. But in terms of new business, all the clubs compete against each other. There's no, it's no different than any other commercial insurance uh, provider. So it's good. It just keeps you healthy, keeps everything healthy and makes yes. sure that there's no sort of, you know, no slack in sustainability. the system. Exactly. And, and is it true that all the, we, um, all, uh, the contracts do renew on the 20th of February? Yes, they do. So even if a ship comes in mid-year, it will be only valid up until the 20th of February, and then it will renew again on the 20th of February. That is because you can't run a mutual in any other way, because they have to be exactly same policy years in order to apply the call system. Right. Okay. And yeah. is that because of the historic, the date at which the Baltic Sea unfroze? Or, or yes, yes, like yes. So yeah, it was, it's yeah, which it normally the... became navigable around that time. Right. So therefore, it's yeah. a good time to get your insurance renewed because you're going to start yes. using your, your ship. Exactly. Uh, within that peer group of 13, what, what's uh, distinctive about the American club? Where do you differentiate yourself and say, join our club because it's different? Uh, okay, <laughs> that's a good question. Thank you for that. Um, so the American club is the only American domiciled club. So the first thing that, uh, that uh, I would say is that we definitely have special know-how with, with the respect to U.S.-related matters. And we all know that the U.S.-related matters sometimes can involve much greater liabilities than other countries. Um, but I would say that more importantly, um, the American club traditionally is geared towards the smaller to mid-size operator. In many cases, family-run family businesses, though, that have been around for decades. And because of our size and that sort of niche in the market, we're a little bit like a boutique. We're also a smaller club, even in terms of the number of people that we have globally and in terms of membership. And what we strive towards and what we've achieved is that we actually know every single member by name. And it's not only just regional, it's really global. We really do know them and our people know the people within our membership. So I think that what we have an, ad an advantage at is that we have a very personable approach. We feel the claims that our members have. We also have invested in local talent in every single um, city that we have an office. We hire locally. We don't send people from abroad to do that job because we believe that local talent and expertise is much better placed and they're going to understand that membership in that country or in that region better than you know an implant from from the united states so we pride ourselves on very personable uh, approach and handling from a claims perspective and i think i think that's our strength i think we're good at that if you look at it we have a, a, about an a year on year we tend to have about a 95 maybe 98 percent in some cases retention so that says it all in my opinion yeah okay well one thing that um pni clubs seem to to do regularly is that they get into you know what you describe as fixed premium business mm -hmm. as in you know for profit uh conventional insurance business uh, we've seen this with uh, syndicates at, at lloyd's but of course you've got your own hellenic hull operations and other fixed premium uh, operations what is it that that draws pni clubs into the conventional insurance world okay so 
just to clarify one thing in terms of the American club, the American club has what's called Eagle Ocean Marine as a fixed yep. premium. And then the American Hellenic is for Hull. So for, in terms of the fixed premium business on P&I, I think the, the biggest the motiva- the motivator is that simply there is a sector of the market right? That doesn't need billions of dollars of cover. They are small ships that do intercoastal trading, sometimes domestic trading, sometimes just regional trading. And so they're looking for lower covers and they couldn't be serviced um, in the past by the mutuals because, you know, they didn't match. So um, that was what we found at the American Club is that why should we not provide that service because we look at insurance cover as a service. We don't really look at it simply, like I said earlier, as a reimbursement of claims. So we said, why shouldn't we provide that service? So what we did was we filled that demand and that gap in the market. And I think that has been the trend within the clubs because also it keeps it within our family as opposed to it going to some regular outside commercial provider. And also the advantage to this is that there are some operators that have smaller tonnage and larger tonnage. And that gives them an option to stay within the, the mutual club's family yep. as okay. well. Yeah, well, that's really, that, 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 that makes sense. And I suppose you're using your infrastructure in a more efficient way. If you've got all those people, you've got all your teams, right? You, you know, you might as well, you've got people in, you know, in all major ports around the world and you might as well use them. Um, right. What about mutuality? Mutuality is it absolutely at the core of PNI? Do you think clubs might ever demutualize? It's happened in the world, in 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 the you know the non-marine world. We've had big mutuals demutualize, uh, particularly in the UK. You've had uh, Norwich Union, for example, uh, and now you know to eventually become you know part of Aviva. Could that ever happen in your world? Well, I'm just going to rely on history. <laughs> I'm just going to say that I think that it's the tried and tested platform. Um, I think that the mutual system provides the most cost-effective way to approach what is probably some of the largest liabilities on the planet. I don't see that happening. That's just my opinion. I think you'd have to get obviously not. I don't. It's not just that I don't think you. <laughs> on board to do something like that. I don't see them seeing an advantage in it. Um, I think it works. And I think that, you know, something works, you know, doesn't need Just to be Just Did you say you'd have to get the members on board? Uh, to want you'd to have to that? get the, yeah, you'd have to get the, yeah. you'd have to get the board members uh, to agree that they're going to demutualize, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it would have to, presumably it would have to be some way of accessing finance that you can't That would get be otherwise. it. Right, but like, but, is uh, it but, debt? but it's presumably you can't raise debt, and obviously you can't raise yes. equity because you don't have equity. Yes, but that's but that's also why I think it won't happen because they can always raise through additional calls if necessary. And when years are good, you you know you, the premiums are low, and when there's a recession, the premiums are low, and then when they're needed, they they rise. So you know it's a balance, and it works. And I presume some of your members, of course, are stock companies themselves, so they can they they can finance uh, if they they if you have a particularly bad year and you have a very high margin uh, call, yeah. then yeah. Uh, uh, presumably th- then they can go and refinance. They've still got their own financing to be able to finance those things. I guess yes, I guess they can. Yeah, consolidation that's something that's uh, often been on the cards. Out of the thirteen, particularly you know your your your, your thirteen yeah. uh, peer group members of the international group, the IG, as you've been saying. Occasionally, potential mergers have been slated, but do you think that's something that's going to be inevitable at some point? I don't. I actually don't think it's inevitable. 
I think that if we look at the instances in recent history, we saw how even though there was a, a suggestion and proposals that they didn't actually get passed by their respective boards. I don't think that there is any inherent advantage for an owner to allow two clubs to merge. Any club at any time can decide to go to a different club if they believe that the club that they're in is, doesn't meet their needs or doesn't match who they are. And really, that's a lot of part of the decision. I think that there is no benefit. I mean, I keep trying to think about this. I've had this discussion before. What is the, what is the, what is the real benefit to the membership to merge two clubs? It would probably dilute their interest or their influence or their relationship actually um it would you know you'd, you'd have to get again two boards to get on board with that and i and i i think that possibly there would be an advantage or a benefit to managers if there's two independent managers running the two clubs but i don't see any real benefit for the membership um, I mean, like I said, we can't forget that these P&I clubs are, are creatures of the ship owners. So if we look at history again, I don't see that anything's changed that would make, that would shift that, that trend. What about um, the potential, you know, you, you're effectively in a sort of an agency that's running the mutual on behalf of its members. Yeah. Um, how do you keep yourself, your interests fully aligned uh, w- w- with the membership? Well, actually, I think that um, having an independent manager keeps balance. Um, there's more transparency. I think that uh, it is the, the, I find it very effective. Our interests are always aligned with the members because we serve their needs. We serve their purpose. Our job is to provide them with the information that they need to make the decisions. So I don't, I think that there's that there's more independence, there's less conflict, and things are much better run that way. So I do think that we're fully aligned. Because and I'm presuming, we, of yeah. course, these are these are uh, international business people, and yeah. you know mm-hmm. they hold they know exactly how to hold your feet to the fire in terms of uh, expenses and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I um, mean, everything gets approved ultimately by the board, so it's very transparent. Um, yeah. everything is disclosed great okay um one last thing uh, one last sort of p i basics question before we move mm-hmm. on to, to bigger stuff that's actually yeah. happening in the p i sector one of the things i've always noticed about p i clubs when, when i go to your results presentations is that yeah. compared to a standard insurance you know uh insurance group uh, you know fixed premium for-profit insurance group you tend to be able to take a little bit more risk or you tend to have an appetite to take a little bit more risk on the asset side of the balance sheet than a fixed premium insurer so you know you tend to have an allocation perhaps a slightly higher allocation to equities and other things why is that or how is how's the how does that come about well don't forget that all all the clubs also have finance committees and they have advisors related to the allocation of the the portfolios that we have i think that you know, each club has its its own individual strategy. The American club strategy has worked in that respect. Of course, we're also balanced by regulatory requirements. 
Because so, it, I mean, you're still covered yeah. by Solvency II and other, yeah. other Solvency Not only that, yeah, regime, Solvency II yeah. for the European and then also New York State, the Department of Financial Services runs the American Club. So we work within these parameters. So you still have to um, take the, uh, you know, take the capital loadings if you have a higher yeah. risk uh, yeah. asset balance, uh, asset side, you still have to take the capital loadings that come with that, right? So. Yes. So, I mean... Uh, yeah, I think that, that that's just a product of the of the um, that's just a product of each individual club's investment strategy based on advice that they're taking from experts. I think that that is the way to explain that. Yeah, and then I suppose, and it's all authorized by the membership anyway. So because right, their money, that's right? exactly exactly. And and well, I mean, we spend hours listening to experts at the American Club um, in order to make sure that we have a sound investment strategy. I mean, if and if you look back, even in two thousand and eight, when we had the, the big crisis and a lot of clubs lost a lot of money, the American Club in particular, I think we had eight percent. I think, but then because we maintained that the advice that we had from the experts, um, from, you know, asset management experts, we kept the same strategy. We did not panic and it rebounded the very next year, the very, you know, within months of the next year with a return, I think of 12%, if I remember correctly. So, you know, it works. <laughs> That's great. Right. Uh, talking more operationally about, about things, you know, as a journalist covering uh, the insurance industry, obviously the, the, the biggest stories in P&I have been obviously the Costa Concordia, grounding and before that there was uh, the um, mv rena which was in, in in new zealand and now we've had a recent loss of the golden ray and all of the the, the core of all of those is a different kind of attitude that's evolved over time towards rec removal uh, whereas you know i do I, I grew up in the 1970s in the uk and i remember there was the the tory canyon and the amoco uh, Cadiz oil spills, and this is in the southwest of England. I remember, I think the Torrey Canyon was used by the RAF as uh, as target practice, and uh, and and these days that just would not happen. You that you'd have a painstaking wreck removal process. So is that really the one of the? I mean, for, looking from the outside, I was I see that yeah. is that one of the most problematic parts of P and I now that you're really having to price in into your premiums. Uh, you know, the, the fact that if you run aground anywhere these days, your local authority is going to be incredibly tough on you in terms of putting the seabed exactly the way it was before and making sure nothing's lying around that shouldn't be there. It's problematic from a handling perspective. Why? Because you hit it right on the nose. So when you have a wreck removal, you're dealing with a local authority. Local authorities don't have the expertise or the experience to understand perhaps the best, best method that could be used to handle the situation. So there is um, a lot of room for government interference in terms of uh, making a decision for the most effective way to approach a rec removal. They don't always listen to what the PNI clubs are recommending. There's also a lot of room for you know, local interests perhaps taking advantage of a situation. So it is definitely problematic from that perspective. I don't think it's problematic from a pricing perspective because we've just had so much experience in dealing with it. The pool structure responds to it so effectively. I mean, look at the cost of Concordia. I think it hit 1.5 billion and, you know, it didn't cause any ripples. It didn't cause any issue for us yeah, there, I mean, there you know tough, obviously it was taking tough, yeah, uh, renewals, exactly right? exactly but, exactly um but taking into the whole hi history into account 
it was something that could be expected. It was something that it was able to absorb. And I just, I just found that um, wonderful, really. Um, I think it just proves that the PNI system is foolproof. So I don't think it's problematic from that perspective, but it definitely is problematic in terms of our general claims handling management, uh, management um, because of the, the great uh, gap or the, the great window that exists for government interference, really. I think that's the biggest problem that's related to reclamation. So there, do you think that you, you're hopeful of any kind of newer international conventions on rec removal coming through, through all the, the you know, the International Maritime Organization and other things? That you I don't see that on, by? yeah, I don't see that high on the priority of, 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 of uh, international, the international industry. I don't see it high. We try and deal with it, you know, simply from a management perspective on, internal guidance and also working with the the stakeholders that would manage a rec removal and that includes also working in tandem with the salvage operators um, to make sure that we're at least all on the same page and i think that's important and i think we've done a good job of that well i mean i suppose the, the other main peril that i would always you'd associate with uh, you know marine liability is pollution so i mean how is the industry doing? What's the kind of uh, report card on the shipping business these days in terms of containing and controlling pollution vis-a-vis uh, -vis the past? Well, I think that if you look at just the industry itself, I think we've come a long way. I think that um, just looking at the changes, even in regulation of tankers, that's made a big difference. Obviously, we have now recent regulation related to um, emissions. The, the IG does its best on the international platforms to be a voice and to show that actually the PI industry and the ship owners uh, care about the environment. We do care about the environment. We rely on the seas. Um, we are, as an industry, better equipped at containing and controlling pollution. Um, that again goes back to cooperation with salvors and experts related to managing pollution and casualties. So, um, yeah, I think that we've, I, th I definitely think that we've come a long way. And, and you know, I mean, what's your gut feeling? Um, because we've had such a long time since we've had a major international oil spill event, given what's happened in, in you know, in, in the intervening time, one presumes mm -hmm. that uh, public or, you know, authorities tolerance for such an event would be, you know, Lower. really, really low, much lower than it ever has been. Do you think yeah. that it's likely to be a much bigger financial event if it does happen uh, than um, it would have been in the past? Would it be a larger financial? I think it would that be a total it, loss to your reinsurance program. I don't think you, it'll be. be no, I don't over. think. No, I don't think it's going to be. Uh, no, I don't think that we would ha have. I don't think that we would have a situation like that. Um, uh, and I think that in any event, the reinsurance structure is built to to be able to manage it. I think in any event, don't forget that oil pollution, for example, is middle, is limited to one billion. So that definitely it, it creates a stop loss. So I think the whole system is created to be able to adapt to the increasing liabilities. I think it's well equipped to manage whatever comes our way right now. Right. Okay. And you mentioned about um, uh, emissions, and that's um, mm -hmm. that stands for things like sulfur in in uh, in, in diesel. How, how are those underlying risks evolving? What are those new rules that are coming in and how, how are you sort of reacting to them? 
Yeah, so I think there was a it was probably the number one thing spoken about last year, um, yeah. IMO 2020, and the implementation of the sulfur cap as of January 1st. And the, I think recently, the I think it was a March 15th deadline, I think, I don't remember what it was, to actually not have any non-compliant fuel on board, um, of course, unless you've installed scrubbers. There's so much debate about this. Uh, the PNI clubs have also spent a lot of time um, discussing it with their membership. I think that it's still early to tell about the impact. I, our, the experts that I have spoken to have said that it's going to take at least six months to a year to see the full impact on the potential liabilities. And one of the reasons is that, uh, the way it's been explained to me, is that the, um, the sulfur element within the fuel also acts as a cushion or a lubricant. And so now they've had to replace that with other additives, chemical additives, to manage that process and really long term we don't know the effect on the engines there's a lot of talk about potential engine problems long term but it, it would take some time because what, basically what it does is it potentially affects the wear and tear so, so i that's think a that machinery it's a, kind of problem but, but uh, not only it's not only though because if you if if a ship is loaded with cargo and it has a, an engine breakdown um yeah, okay. then that impacts on on pni so we are we are very concerned about that but i think that uh, the industry even though there was a lot of talk there was a lot of pushback i think that they prepared well i think we're still gonna i still there's some you know issues over the types of scrubbers that were implemented i think there's probably a sector of the of the ship management um so scrub just to clarify scrubbers yeah. are kind of you know the equivalent of a catalytic, catalytic converter yeah. in your in your, in your car's exhaust so that, that the kind of thing that would clean up some of the emissions before they're emitted out into the into the air right exactly and then there was some debate over different types of scrubbers which are whether they are emitted right and in back into the ocean or whether they're held on board and then and other other debates arise then okay is there going to are there going to be sufficient places to dispose and is it okay to put it in the ocean so these are some of the debates that have have uh, developed and there's also the impact in terms of uh, the ability to trade because some ports are banning open loop scrubbers so there's still a lot more to see on this front for sure but generally the there's a statutory position now that's come in that says you can't have emissions over a certain amount or, yes or, yeah or you can't carry or you a get certain fined. type of fuel yes yes so, or you so really fined. and there you're you know where you would have to come in would would be fines and things where things are non-compliant or Yes, and it will be treated like any other uh, liability related to fines. So if so, there's so th there's this is the way that we have to approach it. So remember that the rules deal with accidental discharge or emission. So each case would have to be evaluated on its specific facts uh, in terms of whether it's covered. So if somebody gets fined because they've taken no measures to comply, that's different than let's say. Uh, an accident related to equipment on the ship or uh, so or if the scrubber do doesn't work yeah. or if you take on right. the wrong type of fuel by accident yes yes so we would the clubs though would obviously look as best like we always do because we're an owners mutual we're always going to look at things on the to the you know looking at it to the benefit of the owner we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt to the greatest extent that we can what about um, you know something that's really been out there a lot recently is is, is cyber risk how, how exposed are, are you to cyber liabilities coming into things? Because certainly we've seen spoofing of, uh, of the kind of GPS, the equivalent of GPS locations that you have on, on board uh, large ocean-going ships and all sorts of interesting things that I've seen 
um, you know, now that there's more technology on board ship uh, these days, uh, how kind of exposed to you are that uh, to those kind of uh, liabilities and how worried are you about them? Right. Well, so the rules don't have any exclusions for cyber risks, but we always have to look at the way we approach P&I and that has to, we have to look at the type of liability that ensues from some kind of a casualty or a cause. So, um, the PNI clubs would be exposed to, uh, let's say you have, like you said, a spoofing, let's say somebody takes over a ship uh, through a cyber attack. Now, if it's related to a war or terrorism act, so if the person that's, t that's uh, doing the cyber attack and taking over the ship and possibly causing some kind of an accident, it's per it's, it's, its purpose was related to an act of war or terrorism, then that is something that is excluded. That would go to the war underwriters. But let's say it's just not related to that. It's just somebody that is just interfering for the sake of interfering. And we know that there are people like that out there. One of the things we have to keep in mind is that if that happens, sometimes we wouldn't even know really. So it would be approached as any other P&I liability. Uh, it might even be, you know, we might even think that it was simply a malfunction of equipment. We might not know that it was a cyber attack, but even if we do know it's a cyber attack, as long as there's, there's no there was no act by the owner that can uh, create, um, let's say, a nexus of allowing something like that to happen, then it would be approached in the normal fashion. So like, for example, again, again, you have to look at every single um, detail in the scenario. If you have a situation where you have policies in place to protect the ship uh, against cyber attacks. You don't let people use unauthorized USBs. You, you, know, you have a procedure in place to try and prevent these things. And despite everything, somebody hacked into you. Like I said, you probably won't know. But even if you do know, and it causes a collision or an accident or it hits a dock or something like that, the P&I will respond to that. That doesn't change anything for us. Um, but if you have, a, let's say, a ransomware situation, because the P&I clubs don't cover uh, standard economic loss, if you have like a situation where, let's say, the shore side of a uh, ship operator's business is attacked by malware and then it's held ransom their documents and things like that are held for ransom well that's not an actual pni risk so that's not something we would cover so that's a separate issue Dorothy, i think we're coming to the end of our allotted time i just want to thank you very much for your time i just want to give you the opportunity to add anything that uh, any other business that we should have discussed that we haven't discussed yet that, that you'd like to or any other messages you'd like to to send I, the only thing I, I really want to get across is that the, the P&I world really is, I know I said this, but it really is unique. It really does facilitate trade. It really creates a platform of security for every single government, every single claimant, every single authority, um, every single harbor master in the world. Um, because it's such a deep, it's such an extensive level of cover, and it, it's been tested so many times that when you see that paper, that certificate of entry um, from a from a from a ship that shows that they're entered with a club that's within the international group, you just know that you're going to have somebody that's well placed to manage your situation. Um, and I'm just really, really proud to be a part of that. Well, Honestly, well, that's it. Thanks yeah. for giving us an, uh, you know, a, a basic kind of uh, navigation of of the PNI world, and thank you so much. And good luck with everything. Um, I know you're in lockdown in in Athens. I hope that, we're, that you're able to sort of start traveling the world again soon. But until then, um, you know, stay safe and look after yourself. And thank you so much. Thank you, Mark.
<laughs> Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>